Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Good evening, everyone. My name is Robin Archer. I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband program here at the London School of Economics. And I'm delighted to welcome you to our pre-term lecture, our event this evening, supported also by the Department of Sociology. Well, with the coronation uh, nearly upon us, we thought it was a good moment to consider some of the underlying arguments for and against the institution of the monarchy, and, and also to think a little bit about what's been happening in those parts of the world where that's under serious consideration at the moment, notably the Caribbean. And to help us do that, we've brought together and an eminent panel, uh, two of whom are sitting with me here today and one of whom has very kindly joined us from the Caribbean. So I'm just going to go through introducing our speakers and then I'll give you a bit of an idea of how we're going to proceed. So on the far left here is Geoffrey Robinson, who, though born in Australia, is definitely one of uh, Britain's most prominent human rights barristers. He's the founding head of the Doughty Street Chambers and he's had all sorts of clients from Salman Rushdie and President Lula in Brazil through to Mike Tyson and Julian Assange and the Guardian newspaper and the Wall Street Journal. And I mean, if you look him up, you'll see it's really a, a lot of different and interesting cases. And he's argued landmark cases, not just in British jurisdictions, but European ones other Commonwealth countries and also at the level of the United Nations. He's also a prominent broadcaster and he's the author of a number of books, one of which we were just talking about is about the treason trial of Charles I. The next speaker we've got is Dr Bob Morris. He's a senior research associate at the Constitution Unit at our neighbouring institution, University College London. He previously held a series of senior posts in the British Home Office where, amongst other things, he was responsible for constitutional affairs. And he's been doing research on those issues in recent years. Most recently, he's brought out a book with a co-author, The Role of Monarchy in Modern Democracies, which seeks to compare democracies in modern Europe. Our third speaker, who you can see on the screen, is Dr Cleve Scott, and I very much want to thank Dr Scott for joining us. I'm particularly grateful that he's bringing his expertise to the table. Our original speaker was called away on official business, and he's very kindly stepped in to speak about the Caribbean experience. Dr Scott joins us from the University of the West Indies, where he's a lecturer in history at the Cave Hill campus. And he's currently part of a team writing a new history for St Vincent and the Grenadines in the Caribbean. He also co-runs the Oral History Project, which I think I'm right in saying is approaching 50 years old. So it's really an important and established resource at the University of the West Indies. Well, as you know, the question as to whether to move to a more Republican system is a very live issue in the Caribbean. And so it's particularly good that we have Dr. Scott with us today. So this is how we propose to proceed. Each of our speakers is going to speak for about 15 minutes, and then there's going to be a short period of chair-led discussion. That means I get to ask questions only briefly, and then we should have half an hour at the end for questions and discussion from the 
audience. Um, we're also having this event online, and so we have an audience online as well as those of you who are here, and um, we should be able to bring some of those questions in too. So before I turn to my speakers, can I just ask you to join me in welcoming our speakers, Geoffrey Robinson, KC, Dr Bob Morris and Dr Cleve Scott. So, uh, Geoffrey, if you... All right. I'm a King's Counsel, which means that I have the awesome duty of advising the royal family if asked free of charge. I've only done it once. It was the King's first wife who was interested with her boyfriend in knowing whether the 1351 Treason Act was still in force. Remember the act under which Anne Boleyn lost her head. It does provide as treason any adultery with the king, with the monarch, or with the next, the heir. And there it is, it's still there. But I was able to reassure her that the capital sentence no longer was execution in prospect, but life imprisonment had replaced it in the 1990s. Well, she seemed to think that she was already undergoing life imprisonment, but there you are. It's all a matter of history. And uh, for this subject, we go back to the Act of Settlement of 1700, British Parliament determined never to have the horrible event of a Catholic on the throne made it part of the law that the only persons who could ascend our throne were descendants of Princess Sophia of Hanover. That's it. All our royals have to have a touch of the German gene of Princess Sophia. Now, of course, some of her de descendants have been all right. Some have been, well, Prince Andrew. But there is the fact, all go back to 1700, that they have to be German. In fact, the royal family changed its name to Windsor back in 1917, uh, to pretend that they weren't related to the enemy because their name really was Saxe-Coburg-Gotha. Then uh, what's that left us with now? It's left us with a white Anglo-German Protestant male monarchy for the next 90 years. What with Charles III Third and William Fifth is it, and George the Seventh. That's ninety years of white Anglo-German Protestant maildom as our head of state. Well, does it matter? We've got the coronation next week, and we'll see whether I still remember. I'm old enough to remember as a small boy the last coronation, that golden coronation coach, I thought it came directly from fairyland. So I guess another generation. <coughs>
will have it as well. But this ceremony, when it's boiled down, is an entirely superficial and, it's fair to say, service of the Church of England. It doesn't, we don't need it. Charles was king the moment of his mother's death by law. So it's entirely unnecessary. But what it is, is a superstitious ceremony that has only meaning to the Anglican Church. It uh, is going to, of course, have considerable following on television, but not all of it is going to be televised. Part of it, the most important part, the part that is taken to mean a divine appointment goes back to the divine right of kings to rule will be in secret going to be censored not even the television stations are gutsy enough to challenge this holy of holy minutes at one point knights of the garter will rush in with a great big tent and they're going to put the tent over the King and Queen and the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Queen's hairdresser. And then the holy moment comes of the divine intercession that we're meant to believe in this day and age, this uh, ludicrous ritual in which the King takes off his purple and puts on a white shirt and the Archbishop ladles oil onto his head, his heart, his hand, and then the Queen. She only gets the oil on her head, after which she's mopped up. And the oil this time will not contain the traditional ambergris, because, of course, Charles believes in saving the whales, uh, but it will nonetheless be it's been mixed in Jerusalem, and the theory is it's been divinely touched, and that at this moment the divine right of kings to rule is exemplified. Anyway, at this point, after this has been done, after they've been mopped up, they can come out of the canopy, and the king will sit on his throne. There's only room for one on the throne, so I'm not quite sure where the queen will go. But then the king takes the oath. And if I noted it down correctly before I came, it goes like this. This is the coronation oath. And he says, he swears to maintain the Protestant reformed religion and to preserve inviolably the settlement of the Church of England. Church of England has been losing uh, worshippers and uh, it doesn't, it's not the largest church any longer and it's diminishing. Most people don't believe it or don't go to it, but there it is, the Church of England. Nothing about Methodists, nothing about Muslims, Nothing about atheists. He's not going to defend them. 
unless the oath is suddenly rewritten. But uh, should he, the king, become a Methodist or a Muslim or an atheist, he's dethroned immediately because we must have the king as head of the Church of England. Anyway, it goes on because he stands and all the audience, the assembled prime ministers of the Commonwealth and uh, so on, all pay homage to him. Homage, this is what they say. They swear to be your liege man of life and limb and of earthly worship to live and die against all manner of folks, so help me God. So they're all prepared, sworn, and ready to go do battle on behalf of the king on foreign fields or local. So I think that that ceremony, superstitious nonsense ceremony really, if fully seen, would make us wonder why this minority church has such a role in our constitution, our unwritten constitution. Why, in fact, it has this role when you, the taxpayers of Britain, are paying for it, because that's the only role that the state has in the coronation, it has to pay for it. Well, there are need to talk about the absurdity of the hereditary monarchy. Tom Paine said it centuries ago, it's as hereditary monarchy is as absurd as a hereditary mathematician. Tony Benn added, it's as absurd as a hereditary airline pilot. But there it is. It is the reason that not only our head of state, but the head of state of dozens of countries of the Commonwealth are inflicted with it. Not a head of state who's Australian or Jamaican or whatever, but a head of state from Britain, who is naturally, as King of Britain, is uh, someone who's biased in favor of England whether it be in the ashes or in a trade agreement. So they seem pretty pathetic countries if they can't come up with one of their own as head of state. It will be interesting because Australia is going through the motions of gearing up for a referendum in a couple of years' time, and it even has a minister for the Republic, it's advanced that far. And the Labour Party, which in its veins remembers the sacking of Gough Whitlam, the great Labour leader, by the Governor General, who was in touch with the palace, it remembers Charles as a man of 27, writing to the Governor General, telling him what a courageous step and what a a brave fellow he was. So that is in the bones of the Labour government and whether it will, of course, spread 
to others remains to be seen. But they had a referendum, Australia did in 1999, the interesting, which rejected the proposition. But the interesting thing is that studies have shown that a majority of people, quite clear majority, were in favor of getting rid of the monarchy. But they, a lot of them, voted against it simply because the proposition was that the governor general, the president, should be decided by politicians, by parliament, that they weren't going to have. They wanted uh, a general election. And so that is something that they will undoubtedly fix this time by having a sifting process and putting up a number of candidates. But it does remind Republicans of the great problem they have. When, back in the 1990s, uh, The Guardian was planning to go full bore on the Republic and had a number of seminars, but <laughs> there was always some grumpy fellow in the corner called Vernon Bogdanor, who was royalist, he would always say, what are you going to get? President Hattersley or President Tebbett? And uh, people would start to wonder. But of course, the first rule for a republic, whether it's Britain or Australia, must be that no one is allowed to stand for president unless, if they have held political office, that is the first rule that Australia is going to ensure that that will happen because uh, that's something that is not attractive. I think we'll never see in our lifetime and probably yours anything like an English Republic, British Republic, but you will see an Australian Republic possibly even a New Zealand Republic, I think that the rest of the Commonwealth will go that way because the hereditary monarchy is absurd. And it breaches all our human rights rules about uh, equality, the privileges that attach to this family are in breach of every meritocratic rule that we have. So I'm not going to spend much time running down the monarchy, uh, I'm going to suggest that the way forward in this country is to write down our constitution. Because at the moment we have a constitution, of, we say it's unwritten, it's full of nudges and winks and nods, and uh, it needs the people of Shakespeare's language need to be able to write the Constitution down. It doesn't need a monarch to open Parliament. The King's speech, the Queen's speech, is always written by the Prime Minister and should be spoken by the Prime Minister. It doesn't need a Prime Minister to run truckling to the palace every week, although some of them enjoy it. Boris Johnson certainly did get away from the job of government, but we don't need it. We don't need a monarch, actually, to swear in 
a government or a government minister. We don't need a monarch to close parliament. Parliament can close itself. We don't need the bits and pieces in the unwritten constitution that devolve at the moment on the monarch. If we wrote down our constitution and made it a constitution that works, it would have the rules for a tied government. It would have the rules for elections. It would have the rule for deciding who should be called upon to govern the country. They'd be there. They can be decided by the Chief Justice who can play the constitutional part we are not monarch. But we're not going to abolish them because Republicans <coughs> like Tony Benn fail to see the basic, I suppose, achievement, certainly the basic function of the monarchy in Britain today is to provide entertainment. Seriously, what would the newspapers be like without the royal family? What would television be like? They are enormously entertaining. Can we keep the entertainment value of this strange, well-paid family uh, while at the same time giving them some sort of role? I think a written constitution would make them custodians of their palaces. We do need someone to keep the palaces up and in charge of parts of our history. That would be a good job for them. They could keep by royal appointment whiskey and boot polish. That uh, could be left to them. And they would have a clearly defined minor role in the Constitution, and then we could elect a president. It wouldn't be President Hattersley or Tebbit, as Vernon Bogdanor claimed. It would be someone who'd never held political office, but who was respected by the country. Okay, it might be Gary Lineker, but not necessarily a bad thing. The Irish have managed to come up with eminently sensible, distinguished people as their head of state. So that would be my suggestion. Abolish the monarchy in every other Commonwealth country as a matter they should get round to as a matter of self-respect. As far as England is concerned, Britain I should say, although you never know about Scotland, uh, we should rather write our unwritten constitution, allocate the uh, hereditary king or queen or both uh, a small role in it as custodians of parts of, our, of a few palaces and leave it at that. That would still enable the tabloids to invade the privacy of the royals and would still enable the royal family to have battles with the tabloids. So we would retain the entertainment value of the monarchy and we would have, I think, a more rational 
sensible and egalitarian country. Well, following the most distinguished advocate that we probably have at the moment, whose experience is extremely wide in not only our jurisdiction but every other jurisdiction he's appeared in. And uh, he speaks in ways which one perfectly understand that might, one might have that sort of reaction to the continued existence of the monarchy here. So should the monarchy be abolished? Um, I take it that my role is to explain what the monarchy is and what it does. Uh, since I'm obviously very old, I leave it to you, especially as a relatively young audience, I think, to decide the issue, since it certainly won't be decided by my generation. First, I would like to make it plain that there is no possible objection or principle um, to switching to some sort of presidential system. Um, constitutionally, they can obviously work. Uh, Geoffrey has mentioned very properly, I think, the state of affairs in Ireland. And what sort of presidency is perhaps another matter, and perhaps that will be something we can consider later. So what is our monarchy and what does it do? Our monarchy is, of course, very old. In the run-up to the next coronation, we are being reminded that the first All England coronation took place in Bath in 973 with the crowning of King Edgar. Elements of election lingered after the Saxon kings. William the Conqueror's eldest son inherited Normandy, not England. And uh, one could argue, I think, uh, that primogeniture was not affirmed in England until the succession of Richard I in 1189. The Capetians got there first. Uh, they started primogeniture, as one can review it, um, in 996, and it worked until 1326. Then there was a little problem. Civil government, as we now know it, was then a small and limited affair for a thinly populated agrarian economy. Arguably, the church remained larger than civil government in this country until sometime in the early 19th century. That is why the coronation still signifies, amongst other things, the unification of temporal and spiritual power in a joint project of governance. Over time, the executive functions became separated from the person of the monarch. We fought a civil war over the issue. It follows that, like all the other European monarchies, ours has survived by surrendering its political roles to elected assemblies to which heads of the executive are accountable. This is a common feature of all the uh, current monarchies that still exist in Europe. Modern monarchy, it seems, has two principal functions. It provides the head of state, but it also uh, provides a head of nation. A head of state, uh, the monarch carries out all the higher constitutional operations common to other heads of state. The appointment, but not nowadays the selection of the prime minister. Head of the armed and civil services appoints always on advice the judiciary, all the senior clergy of the Church of England, and numerous other appointments. The monarch goes on and hosts state visits. 
and all overseas representatives are accredited to the monarch's court. Diplomats are flattered by royal attention. Prime ministers are not burdened with the formalities. Prime ministers have weekly audiences. They say that it's quite useful to talk to somebody who won't leak what is said. If you think you're in the position of the prime minister, that might be a very valuable element. How valuable? Don't know because the records aren't published. The monarch signs all legislation before it can become law. It's, uh, that's a process of certification which affirms that all the necessary procedures have been followed. And as Geoffrey has pointed out, the king is still head of state in 14 other Commonwealth countries, the realms. In all these respects, the monarchy is very tightly regulated by the government and parliament. The rules of succession and their financial support and taxation are controlled by parliament. Monarchs cannot choose their religion, who they can marry, or speak publicly without the consent of ministers. The head of nation roles are not regulated in the same way. Provided now that in all things the monarchy remains politically impartial, welfare and service roles have grown particularly from the time of George III and his sisters. Apart from formal patronages of a multitude of charities, they have inaugurated fresh initiatives, Charles's Prince's Trust endeavours, the Princess of Wales' interest in childhood early years, and her husband's, and for a while his brother's, initiatives about mental health. Over 3,000 royal family engagements a year represent the extent of royal support for civil society, a degree of activity which may itself be slimmed down if the king's plans for slimming down the monarchy have that effect. And also for visits uh, to the realms too. These aspects are also to be reflected in the coronation congregation, whereas in 1953, the largest contingent um, was hereditary peers and their wives in a congregation of 8,250 people. This time, 450 British Empire medal holders are invited in addition to charity representatives in a congregation of 2,200 perhaps. Religions other than Christianity will have a special presence in the coronation of a king keen to emphasize the importance and security of freedom of religion in a diverse society. The monarchy also brings a family of all ages to which different generations can relate. My eldest granddaughter was devastated when William married because she realized she could no longer hope to marry a prince. There is color and there's glamour, as Geoffrey has pointed out. Um, there is entertainment, there are birthdays, marriages, and jubilees and parades. What is the effect of all this? One of our leading pundits, Simon Sharma, put it, what the monarchy does is provide a space where people can actually belong to a national community and its history without the bitterness of mutual political hatred. And incidentally, of course, we are already a republic. We just happen to have an hereditary head of state, which prevents politicians from occupying the highest office already, and thus limits the ambitions of the political class. As Simone Weil put it in the 1940s, she is a French woman in exile, 
in Britain, there was something comforting about living in a country where the most important person had no political power at all. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Thank you very much. We turn now to Dr. Cleve Scott, who's, as you know, joining us online from the University of the West Indies. Dr. Good evening, everyone. Uh, greetings, actually, from Kingston, St. Vincent and the Grenadines. And I'm on the, one of the mountain ranges overlooking Victoria Park. And above Victoria Park, there is Fort Charlotte. <laughs> so I guess you get the gist. As someone who was born in the 1960s, and everyone would know the 1960s is the earliest period of the colonization in the Caribbean, followed by Jamaica, British Guyana, now Guyana. We have Barbados 1966, and then the Eastern Caribbean islands of St. Vincent and the Grenadines, Antigua and Barbuda and so on, becoming independent. Now in the 1960s and early 1970s, there was a very vibrant black power movement, which eventually morphed into the new left movement. And of course, uh, the students in LSE are very keen on politics. I myself spent many days in your libraries um, looking for documents while I did my PhD. Now in 21st century Caribbean, we have a generation who are more for removed from the legacies of colonialism. And we have a growing demand for quickening the pace of decolonization. To use the words of the late Prime Minister of Barbados, Errol Walton Barrow, we are still loitering on colonial property after closing time. And that is what he said in 1966. And today, 57 years later, there are so many territories in the region that have colonial legacies, which they are now trying to get rid of. So what is the current state of play? There is a widespread call for movement to republicanism. During the constitutional design drawings that took place at Whitehall in the 1960s and 1970s, the British colonial authorities made it very difficult for many of these territories to change their constitutions. They, in, they made a set of provisions to entrench certain articles. And this means that there is a demand or need for, for referendums. St. Vincent and the Grandines, which I'm speaking to you from, attempted such a feat about 10 years ago to move to Republican status. And this constitution, which contained many other things, this draft constitution was rejected. Of course, I'm not everyone knows that Barbados is now a republic, but unlike St. Vincent and the Grenadines, Barbados 
did not need to undertake a referendum. Tied up with this issue of republicanism is the demands for reparations, which CARICOM, the grouping of about 14 Caribbean territories, has been pursuing. When Barbados celebrated the transition from monarchy to republicanism, the current king, he then as a prince, issued a, a statement of regret about enslavement. So that this movement or this demand for republicanism correspond to the movement around reparations. So we have republicanism and reparations. Tied up also is the whole issue of the Privy Council, mm -hmm. the final court of appeal for many of these countries, which are, of course, part of the British Commonwealth. And so we have uh, ongoing debate across the region, how do we move to Republican status? Almost half or more of CARICOM has indicated that they will become republics within the next five years. That is if they can pass the threshold of the referendum. So Jamaica has established their commission and they begin to work. And they have already had the, the arguments around issues as, such as LGBTQ rights. Then we have Antigua and Barbuda announcing that they will set up a commission. St. Vincent and the Grandins saying that they will again set up a new commission and so on. And don't forget, we have a number of territories which are already Republican republics. You have the Commonwealth of Dominica, Barbados, Trinidad and Tobago, and Guyana. So that you have a strong movement in 2023 for the movement to Republican status. The question is, what else from the perhaps from the UKN has helped to fuel this this movement, I would say to you, the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. She, she sat on the throne for 70 plus years and she had tremendous respect across the region. The newer generation, particularly the current king, is more or less unknown. The prince, the brothers, are well known. They made a recent they made recent trips to the region, and they seem to have made some connection with people. But as the first speaker mentioned, a lot of this is about entertainment value, most so as to being able to deal with issues of development, development aid, issues around international politics and so on. For example, the Commonwealth was caught up in a small foray over the continued availability of Baroness Scotland. And the CARICOM was initially split down the middle and then eventually CARICOM went behind Baroness Scotland. So you have these kinds, these kinds of matters being debated. If you ask a person from the Caribbean, should the monarchy be abolished? Nine out of 10 persons would agree because in any case, it is something that, that they are not in touch with. During the colonial period, people spoke regularly about the king and then the queen because 
the monarch was the person of last resort. In fact, as recent as 2001 at a political campaign in a deep rural district, I heard a lady, a fairly old lady, saying that if she didn't get justice, she had a right to the queen to complain. And this was a regular statement during the colonial period. So in the post-colonial period, that kind of role, especially with the coming of independence, where now the governor general is just a figurehead more than anything else. So that's it in a nutshell. Perhaps when we come back for questions, I could dig deeper. Thank you very much, Chair. Thank you very much, and thanks to all our speakers. As I said, I'm just going to start by asking a question to each of our speakers, and then I'll turn it over to um, all of you to ask questions. Let me just start um, with Geoffrey Robinson. I mean, it's fairly clear that from the point of view of political philosophy, it's highly undemocratic to have this system where people are born into a position of political authority. But I just want you to reflect on the fact that there's very few countries that have been continuous democracies for a century, maybe eight, maybe 10. Mostly they're the Scandinavian countries and English speaking settler societies. And the large majority of them are constitutional monarchies. So is there some sort of unintended consequence that pro-democrats need to consider when thinking about this debate? Well, they should look to America, which, uh, of course, has a much purer democracy, if you like, for all its uh, goods and bads, pros and cons. But we, our monarchy does seem to be encrusted with much more business than the Scandinavians, the, the bicycling monarchs. And, of course, if we go a little further to Germany, they've pretty much abolished it. They look at the Eurotrash royals, as they're called, and uh, of course they don't match up to ours, but that's because they've been put on the outer, and their role is purely ceremonial. They have no very little function, as our monarchs do in the business of parliament. They're always, they're opening parliament, they're closing it, they're swearing in ministers. They, it's not a case that they're divorced from politics, would that they were. When uh, Brexit was on the, it was touch wood, whether Brexit would pass. The son, I, I don't know whether it invented, it's quite capable of doing that, uh, a Queen's comment uh, in favour of Brexit. Now, whether that was actually said by the Queen, as I say, or invented by the Sun, doesn't really matter. But it had, point is, it had a political significance. And of course it has a political significance because the giving of honours, the bestowing of privileges, is something that is weighted towards the conservative side of society. When I was a kid growing up in Australia, it was <laughs> very amusing at how the honours, which uh, of course Australian politicians telegraphed to the palace, were always 
for, well, mainly for the wealthy reactionaries. You've got business company uh, directors who are given honors, knighthoods for services to business, which were always services to themselves. And so that weighting of privilege, the distribution of privilege, even the appearance of privilege, uh, is something that is, I think, quite objectionable. But uh, it may be that, of course, the public love it, or it may be that the public here are brainwashed into thinking that it's a great thing, because certainly that is the effect of the media who love the monarchy and made deals with the monarchy and Harry is absolutely right when he gives evidence of the deals that his family have done with the press. So that's all I think to be taken into account. I wouldn't think that there is a real comparison between our monarchs and those, the bicycling monarchs of Scandinavia. Okay, thanks. So I'll just turn to you now, um, Dr. Morris. So part of what you said was that there's a head of nation role and there's a head of state role. And the thrust of it was that the head of state role is very constrained by parliament and conventions and so on. Geoffrey mentioned earlier the sacking of the Labor government in Australia. Now, most people probably don't know about that, but the salient point about it is that the Queen's representative, the person playing the role of the monarch, decided to get rid of the person who had a majority in the lower house of parliament. And it turned out that despite all these conventions, there was sort of notional powers that could become real under certain circumstances. So I just want you to think, could, could you just respond to that? I mean, isn't there a danger of leaving in place, however constrained they may be by convention, these notional powers? The monarch is the head of the armed forces, the law must be signed by the monarch, and so on and so on. What's your, I mean, I don't mean to go into the details of the Australian yeah. experience, but surely... But, I mean, the problem in Australia was that the Prime Minister was thought not to be able to guarantee supply. Government could continue. Yes? I mean, that is getting into the detail. That seems a fairly serious <laughs> situation. Well, but, yep. but if you control a majority in the lower yes. house of parliament... Well, this assumes, I think... A very basic we, convention that you should, be the, you should be the prime minister if you control a majority in the lower house of parliament. But he couldn't provide supply. Well, he could. Uh, this is where we get <laughs> yeah, into <laughs> details. You could have a half-Senate election. Mm -hmm which would... Well, of course, it remains a matter Senate. of a continuing controversy, of course. I understand, in Australia. The more general point is these notional powers, whatever they are, can become real under certain circumstances. Yes, Isn't well, I suppose they're there to draw upon in a, in, a, in a crisis. I'll give you an example of where it was in Trinidad some years ago, where terrorists, Muslim terrorists, invaded Parliament. And they held the Prime Minister, the Attorney General, the whole Cabinet, and several opposition under the gun in Parliament House. And they took over the television station, and uh, they wanted 
some sort of revolution. And the acting president of the Senate was, the, was standing in for the governor general, so was the monarch. Suppose it happened here. Suppose terrorists uh, took over the parliament house, held the prime minister and cabinet under the gun. That would be a situation where the royal prerogative or whatever would dictate that you have the commander-in-chief of the armed forces, namely the king, would then be directing things. So it's not impossible. Okay. No, thanks. Um, but do you want to just comment on, on the original question? I mean, you're relatively sanguine about the dangers of these notions. No, I think there are certain scenarios you can think of which would be very testing of any constitution. This is so in all the jurisdictions, whether they have a written constitution or not. I think a written constitution is not quite the right way of describing what I think the project might be. That is, one would codify the constitution. Yeah. Large parts of it is already written, um, not to everybody's taste, perhaps, but there, it's not an unwritten constitution in the sense that it's total chaos out there. And uh, some of the understandings have been written down more recently in the Cabinet Manual a few years ago about which was uh, designed to precipitate what the rules were in the case of a minority government and how the uh, leader of the executive should be chosen in those circumstances. And one has to go on trying to uh, meet. If you consider the changes, for example, that have occurred in the last 70 years, I mean, it was the case uh, when the Queen succeeded that um, the monarch actually did choose the Prime Minister. We have no uh, arrangement in our system, although it is true in the devolved governments, there's no uh, arrangement where Parliament has to pass a specific vote to support the man who, or woman, who's selected for the prime ministerial role. And that's an area which partly needs attention. Um, it's also the case that the uh, there's some confusion about the inherited prerogative powers where, which were once exercised by the monarch but which are now exercised by ministers. And some feel that uh, that relationship has happened without uh, the rules of the exercise of their prerogatives being properly understood. And there are these areas of the coronation which certainly need attachment and attention. So, um, but this is the case with all uh, the uh, constitutions. The constitutions of the other monarchies in Europe are codified. They're quite brief documents, if you look at them. And they can't possibly cover all eventualities. And in practice, they operate by use of conventions in very much the same way that we use conventions in our system. So it's hardly a case of black and white in comparison. The other monarchies that used to exist in Europe disappeared mostly after some appalling crisis. In 1789, it was the collapse of the state. Other cases, it was basically the destruction caused by uh, a titanic loss in warfare. That's what disappeared the Prussian and the... Yeah, Chair, can I come in here? Yes, yeah, yes. I'm yes. going to ask you a question too, but please come in. Yes, this issue about the, the role of the monarchy in difficult political situations have played out in the Caribbean for the last 50 plus years. Uh, we could go back to Grenada, 1983. It was Sir Paul Schoon who requested the US 
to, to lead the invasion into Grenada. There was elections in the British Virgin Islands a few days ago, which resulted in a no result. And according to the constitution, if the parties didn't form a coalition government, then it would be the governor who would appoint the prime minister, the premier, the premier, because of course they are overseas territory. So in all of this, the overseas territories, we're talking about Tuks and Caicos Islands, the Cayman Islands, the British Virgin Islands, Montserrat. And there were many incidents in Montserrat over the last 30 years. And it talks some cake of islands, which I'm sure your ardent students of political history would know about. So that if you're getting rid of the monarchy, the question is, how would you reconstruct the constitutions of these overseas territories? And also of the territories which use the monarchy? Because under most constitutions, the ultimate re result is to the monarch. Back to you. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, I'll just quickly address another question to you, um, Dr. Scott, if you don't mind. It's, it's about the process of transition. I mean, you mentioned a number of times that there have been referenda in various cases, a number of which have failed. Now, here in Britain, of course, we've recently had experience of a referendum which, which passed, but very, very narrowly. And that obviously produced huge um, polarisation in the society. So what, what are your thoughts on the appropriate way to address this type of transition? I mean, the Barbados case where there's no referendum gets around the polarisation problem, but only at the expense of not consulting the population at all. So what are your thoughts on, on the advantages and disadvantages of referenda in this context? The, the referenda requirement was instituted by Whitehall during the constitutional negotiations. Um, we have the 1960s when we go, move to associated statehood status and then independence, the, the early 1960s and then the 70s and 80s. Now, Whitehall officials were always wary that local political activists would abuse power. And so they deeply entrench a number of provisions. In Barbados' case, they needed a simply a simple two-thirds majority in the in the House, the House of Elected Representatives. In most of the other territories, they need a referendum with a two-thirds majority and a simple majority in the in the house and now the situation in all of these territories is we have highly polarized political systems in most countries you have two main political parties and uh, those of us who study politics know the purpose of our of our majesty's opposition is to propose and oppose and dispose some of them take it very seriously as we have seen in referendum in Antigua and Barbuda to move from the Privy Council as a final court of appeal to the Caribbean Court of Justice was rejected in St. Vincent and Grandines. All of that was rejected in St. Lucia. They were able to move to the CCJ about two months ago through a simple majority 
in the house. And to do this, they went through a lot of, a lot of legal consultation to ensure that the Constitution provided for that. Now, the challenge is public education. Public education is a challenge. Many governments do not want to invest the time and money to do the public education. In any case, they are convinced that so many years removed from, the, from colonialism that the bulk of the populations want to move away from these things. So that's in essence what is happening across the region. Thanks very much. Well, it's time now, I think, to turn to the audience and get a few questions. Let's just get an indication of who'd like to ask one. Yes, please. Could you just say who you are and where you're from? Because we've got an online audience as well. Uh, Delbert Sandiford. I used to live in Barbados many years ago. I want to make a general point that I haven't seen any public rush towards getting rid of the monarchy, either here or in Barbados. If you take Barbados as an example, the University of the West Indies did a poll of 500 Barbadians when the decision was made to become a republic. 34% of the people supported the idea. Most people were indifferent to the idea of becoming a republic. There wasn't a general push towards republicanism. Uh, and in fact, I think most Barbadians would have opposed it if there had been a referendum. But it's quite correct that a government that has 30 seats out of 30 can do virtually anything, and that was the situation in Barbados. But to our speaker, Dr. Scott from, from St. Vincent, I, I just wonder why we have a laboratory in the Caribbean where most countries that were British colonies are still monarchical in terms of the constitution, and two have been long-standing Republicans, uh, Guyana, and Trinidad, and I, I'm sorry that I did interrupt. Uh, Dominican? But Trinidad was a republic at that point in time, and they solved that little local difficulty that they had without resort to monarchy. Dominican. Why is it where you have Dominican? those laboratory conditions that we're not able to say what the republic difference is? Does it have an impact on the economy? Does it have an impact on governance? What is the republic difference that makes it better because you can compare Trinidad and Guyana with the rest of the Caribbean, where is the difference? And I just want to make one final point, and it is to do with public education on the issue. I, I believe in that completely. There's been no public education here. There's been no public education in the Caribbean. And I suspect that's why there's such little interest, because who is persuading people? Politics is about the persuasion, if about anything else. The difference surely is the pleasure of living in a post-colonial rational society that doesn't elevate certain people uh, because they come from a particular family. That's one feature. I think, I mean, I've practiced in the Privy Council for many years and I've always thought it was a colonial institution, but people in the Caribbean very often see it as a protection. And the function that it serves in the Caribbean, I think, is the function that the European Court of Human Rights serves in Britain, namely uh, a forum which is outside the heated views locally and is impartial, uh, that 
decides on principle whether you've got it right. Of course, it was mainly uh, the Privy Council turned into a death penalty court, and that is now being more taken care of by the uh, local Caribbean court. But nonetheless, it does have that advantage. It serves as a human rights court for uh, an impartial human rights court for small islands. Okay, I want to get in a few more questions, but I just wonder if um, Cleve wants to comment on that question, but just briefly, if you don't mind, so I can get a few more in. <laughs> yes, well, he mentioned the poll, of course, I was associated with the poll. I was led by Professor Cynthia Barrow-Giles, and it's part of a project we're working on called the Visible Count, looking at the impact of Queen Elizabeth II, along with City University across the region, and I'm doing oral history work on that. Now, there is something which I think uh, my commentator did not take into consideration, that in anything where there is no protest, it tells you something. In Barbados, part of the main concern for the average person is, as he alluded to, what would make life different for me? So that all that has simply happened is the movement to republic. They are now working on the constitution. So the only thing that has changed is the removal of the name royal from a, a number of names of the state and uh, the, the change from a governor general to a president. So that the president, in effect, is doing the same thing that a governor general would have done under the monarchy. Now, my friend, you would recognize when the government did indicate that they were going to celebrate both Independence Day and Republic Day, by calling it Republic Day, the people protested. And so they changed back to calling it the Independence Day. Back to your chair. Okay, thanks. Um, let's see um, if we've got some more questions that someone would like to ask. Let me just take a question from the online audience. So um, Stuart McIver in London uh, writes about how one should assess the value of the monarchy. And um, he sort of observes that there's been a discussion in the press about the value of the monarchy in terms of tourism. And he asks the panel to consider in the British case how that sort of assessment can be made. I mean, is it the case that um, there's a sort of tourism benefit that outweighs the cost? Um, this is obviously, perhaps, Bob, do you want to? Yes, certainly. Well, I mean, it's very difficult to calculate it. I, I sus suspect impossible. I don't think most uh, tourists who come to this country come because we are a monarchy. Uh, they come for other reasons, I would suspect. They might come on special occasions, like the coronation and so on and so forth. But uh, it's not, I, I can't believe it's really um, a significant uh, contribution to the economy in that sense. Or that one can make a sort of financial balance between what they cost and what, what uh, benefits we might get from tourism. You'd have to put into account the tax perks that the monarchy get. You'd have to the cost 
of the monarchy, all those palaces. These things are servants. determined by Parliament, Geoffrey, as yeah. you well know. I do. Um, and and we are essentially a republic already, so what's the beef? You know? Well, The Guardian has been running these stories about how much... Some accurate, some accurate, yeah, some I agree. Accurate. Yes. But uh, <laughs> that's enough. Tourists come for British Museum, for Shakespeare and Stratford. I don't think that, do they watch the changing of the guard? Would you come all the way from New Zealand to look at the changing of the guard? I don't think so. There's not much that the monarchy puts out, really, apart from you can now go into a section of Buckingham Palace, but uh, no, I don't think it's a prime tourist attraction. Okay, so some other questions. Um, let me just see who's got their hand up. So I'll just uh, take this gentleman first and then come. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for your speeches, all. Uh, uh, thank you for allowing me the microphone. Can I um, just ask the experts, please, what is monarchy? Colloquially, the crown jewels, you wouldn't chop them off, would you? Well, Cromwell sold them off and left only the, <laughs> the spoon, which was probably not worth much, but his government was in financial difficulties, so he sold off the crown jewels, uh, which was sensible to do for a, at the time. But the monarchy is the sovereign. The, uh, a lot of confusion about the word sovereignty. It seemed to be important to people at the Brexit referendum, but uh, we call the, the sovereign is the embodiment of the power of the country. So. That's the, uh, he or she embodies the, the puissance, as they said, of the country itself. And Bob, you've done some work categorizing different kinds of monarchy. Maybe that's worth mentioning here. Yes, well, I mean, it's true that the only time, for example, the Danish crown appears is on the coffin of the departing monarch. Hmm. Um, Regalia are not used in the crowning ceremonies in any of the other European monarchies. We alone have a coronation. Uh, as Geoffrey has rightly said, coronations do not make the king. The king becomes the king immediately. His predecessor dies. And the coronation, of course, has changed in various ways over a very long period that has been in existence, and is changing again. I mean, what we're going to see on the 6th of May is a very much a post-imperial coronation, where the bulk of the uh, uh, congregation, which will be itself uh, a bare quarter of what the people who were assembled in 1953, where the aristocracy were the largest contingent, that has gone. And I think Geoffrey was making a very important point, too, about religion. Um, what we've seen in religion is really two things, two trends over the last uh, 70 years. That is, we've become more secular. Fewer people now believe in God. Um, many, many fewer people attend the Church of England. That is true. Uh, uh, on the other hand, we have seen pluralization. That is, we now have many more uh, non-Christian religions in, in the country. And you may have noticed that the king within the week of his mother's death, assembled faith leaders in Buckingham Palace, and a very good example of the convening power that monarchs have. 
um, to reassure him that he understood that the, the religious dimensions of our society has changed radically, and to confess his own belief, his continuing belief, but his respect also for the other monarchies, and underlined how important it is that we maintain religious freedom and the support for religious freedom. So this is an example of what the monarchy can do in response to changes in our society. And um, so the religious character of the monarchy has changed a very great deal. And I think it's more of an open question than it used to be whether coronations will become repeated. Okay, thanks. I'm going to take a question from the online audience from Viandra Rizki, who um, asks this question from Jakarta in Indonesia. The questioner asks that in 1979 there was a communist government in Grenada and yet the monarchy continued to exist and continues to exist until today. Um, the questioner also refers to a similar episode in Romania and says, what does this mean that it's possible for communism to coexist with monarchy in this kind of way? Um, Cleve, have you got some thoughts on that? Yes. Now, the Grenada situation is a much more complex than that. Maurice Bishop came to, came to office via a coup d'etat in March of 1979. Eric Gehry had been the political leader since the 1960s, late 50s, 1960s, and he was someone the British government really never liked. In fact, Well, he believed when, in flying saucers. <laughs> yes, he believed in UFOs. Yes, very, very good. Yes. So when, when Gary was removed, the British government was elated. And across the region, they maintained political relationship with, with Grenada, with the expectation that Grenada would be, become a democ democracy. However, as I mentioned earlier, in 1983, the revolution imploded, and it was the governor general, Sir Paul Schoon, who basically took control of the government and with the palace and, and the assistance of the US and so on. So that in, in a kind of way, the monarchy played the role, which I mentioned earlier, that it has played across the region in, in serious political difficulties. So I mentioned the overseas territories like Montserrat, Tox and Caicos Island, Cayman Islands, most recently the British Virgin Islands, where the premier was arrested in the US for drug smuggling and is still awaiting his trial. And a few days ago, an election that resulted in, in no winner, and uh, fortunately they formed the coalition government. Had they not formed a coalition government, then it would be the role of the monarch, the representative, the governor general. So both panelists have already said that these are things that can be codified, written down, and you play the role, but you're not, you're not given this role to a hereditary. The, the, the essential challenge that people have is this hereditary tradition in the 21st century. It seems out of sync, as the panel say, in a period in which you have LGBTQ, with people uh, believing in all kinds of different religions. The Church of England is no longer what it was four or five hundred years ago and so on. Back the to you, monarch Chip. didn't play any part, really. The real monarch was Ronald Reagan. 
who <laughs> invaded under the pretext of saving some pampered American uh, medical students, and it came and shot up the, <laughs> the communists from the LAC who'd taken over the government and uh, had killed Morris Bishop and his pregnant wife, and their bodies have still not been recovered. But it was, re it was a lesson in power. The, the Thatcher and the, the, the Queen were very upset that uh, it should be put down by Americans, but they had the power. They were afraid that Bishop, the moderate socialist, would, would put an airfield, a new airfield, and invite in the Russians. So uh, that was why America acted. Right. Um, now I think, uh, can I just see if, how many people want to ask questions? So I've, I've got um, over here a question, and I think if we can keep them short and the answers short, we can fit in a couple. Thank you very much. Adrian Thomas from the LSE. Um, today was uh, an open day here at the school, um, and we welcome students from all backgrounds, all different types of um, nationalities here. And one thing we tell them is, Dream big, you can be whatever you want to be. If you work hard enough, you can achieve whatever you dream. Mm. With one exception and one caveat, that you can't be head of state and you can't be king and you can't be queen. So my question to the panel is, to what extent do they feel that that caveat that you have to add to young people undermines the dream that we sell to them? Okay, just briefly, perhaps. I think it does. Because you can't be a lot of things, not just the monarch, and that's a symbol of a lot of other barriers in this society that they'll face. And uh, the, the monarchy seems to me a bad thing because it's the incarnation of privilege, and that's something that uh, we should avoid for the very reason that you tell your students they can be anything if they work hard. Well, they can't. Well, of course, anyone, you don't have to be a citizen, can be the prime minister in this country. And that's uh, the person who actually has the power, as we know. The monarchy doesn't. Um, it's no longer a political uh, actor in, in things. Like the other monarchies uh, in Europe, they've all ceded political power. The one thing that would torpedo our monarchy is if they pretended or sought to act impartially. Um, Jeffrey has found an instance which he doesn't believe in, but which he leaves on the table, as it were, about the Brexit affair and the son's description. This is a, a kind of trick that is possible in the courts, um, but I'm not sure it cuts eyes politically. But it is true that you cannot aspire to the highest office in the land. But the highest office in the land isn't what it was, and it's certainly, I'm not sure that you would be attracted to the sort of gridiron of control which, in which you exist. A privileged existence, yes, but not one in which you control your own life. Okay, now we're getting close to the end here. So I've got one question on the uh, online audience, and if you could just very briefly, I think I'll take them both together. Hi, thank you. thank you. It's similar to the last question, really, a question of um, equal opportunities and privilege. One thing that has been addressed is the whole psychological effect of the monarchy in terms of 
maintaining the class structure in terms of deference, in terms of subservience, which maybe is changing, probably has changed in the last 50 years, but it's still very much there. And the monarchy is certainly a malign influence in that sense, it seems to me. And also in terms of, you know, we all believe in equal opportunities. Even the Tories believe in equal opportunities. Even the police believe in equal opportunities, or at least they pay lip service to it. The existence of a, an institution like the monarchies is a mockery of equal opportunity, surely. I mean, that, you know, that seems to me the, one of the most malign effects of the monarchy. Just let me Sorry. just put this Take one down off. too, otherwise we'll, we'll, we won't get through it. So there's a, suddenly a rush of questions on the online. I'm just going to choose one here from Christine Overall, who writes from Kingston in Ontario, as opposed to Kingston, where our panellist is. What do the panellists think about the fact that the monarch and his relatives possess so much wealth, control and so much power? So we've got one about equal opportunity um, and we've got one about wealth and power. Well, I think this is an objection to monarchy. And the, uh, one has to weigh how important you think it is and whether it requires movement to another form of head of state. And this is an open question. And uh, there's not a right or wrong answer, I think, about it, uh, but it could be one of the factors which weighs at, at, at a point where, for some reason, we are questioning the existence of the current arrangements. And it's, it's difficult to foresee what that crisis could be. Um, there have been 18 referendums about monarchy in, in Europe since the Second World War. Uh, some have upheld the system. I think it's probably most have not. Um, and maybe, you know, the feeling about uh, the head of state, which have been voiced by two of the last speakers, will tell. And it becomes a political issue. But at the moment, we have a system where the monarchy is controlled by parliament. Parliament makes the rules about succession. They decide what the monarchy should be paid. And if from the monarchy's point of view, there is a case for considering that they need an independent source of money to be able to do the few constitutional roles that they have to fulfill. They don't, it's not a healthy situation where the monarchy is in the pocket of the current, monarch, uh, the current government. And maybe this crisis will grow in some way. We will put greater value on the issues which have been identified. Um, at the moment, the monarchy remains sufficiently popular. But I'm not here to defend monarchy forever. I mean, it, it is like any other institution. It has no innate right to survive unless it finds a way of being useful. And we accept that as a way in which we can comfortably uh, live with monarchy, despite its drawbacks. And there are drawbacks which have been identified. I agree. And it's a question of balance in the end about what we think is most important in our society and how we should reorder, if necessary, the constitutional arrangements that we have. So, uh, Dr. Scott, can I turn to you? I mean, there's a two-headed question, and we don't have a lot of time, but partly about uh, equal opportunities and norms and partly about wealth and power. The, the issue of equal opportunities is one which is raised across the region as to why we should become republics. And not only equal opportunity, but the issue of race. 
because as everyone knows, the vast majority of the people in the region are either of African descent or of East Indian descent. Of course, we have people who are white, but the vast majority of African descent. Now, that is what is put on the table. But I think the more fundamental point in a 21st century, as both panelists pointed to, how do you get to the monarch? Uh, for, the, for the coronation, you will have representatives from across the region. I've seen defense forces from Montserrat and so on. They will be there. People from the Commonwealth will be there. And so the coronation is seen as a Commonwealth wide celebration. So whatever format that goes, we go, we go to in the UK, it would be sensible that Caribbean people, especially those in the overseas territories, have some kind of say, whether it's through election or whatever. Thank you. Um, Jeffrey. Actually, I agree with my colleague uh, in your last uh, comments, pretty much, what George VII's coronation will be like, or if he will have a coronation at all, it will might be slimmed down to but he won't have a tent in which God is to appear through the oil and um, divinely appoint him. So uh, people were very impressed by the level of service. This is always the argument, the service that the Queen gave and so on. But if you were taken aside at the age of 15 and asked you can either be a free person, or you can serve the state with uh, 12 palaces, over a thousand servants, as many horses as you like, corgis galore, if that's what you want. Um, what would you prefer? Well, some, uh, seems Harry, want to be free, and others would be very, very pleased to live a life of luxury at taxpayers' expense. So I don't rate the service argument, and I do think the psychological factor is important. Here are superior people whose wealth and whose status are derives entirely from the accident of their birth and who are perpetuating a system of privilege, a system where people are not equal, a system where we doff our hat, we curtsy and grovel. And even if that is only a, an impression, it is nonetheless an impression of British society that others, particularly Americans, take away, and it's a picture of British society that an awful lot of British people believe in and act out. Well, I'd say that, of course, it is not the case that there aren't other people of wealth in our society who yeah. also have privileges. And, and they're generally the found around the monarch. Well, some probably are, but I don't think that's necessarily the general case. But it is true. I mean, these arguments are something to weigh in the balance. And the question really is not whether we uh, become a republic. We are a republic. We've been a republic since the late 17th century. 
with a pretty narrow franchise, I believe, and mm -hmm. of course, but that's changed. And we have managed to uh, change partly because we've never had our territory seriously challenged. We've had a, a degree of um, the absence of discontinuity. And it's been possible to make adjustments over time which seem to be acceptable politically. But that is not necessarily going to hold forever. And we may, if these values are thought to be weighty enough to challenge the present arrangements, then we must, must consider them. Yes, the okay. demise of the Church of England will be an important right. stage. The disestablishment <laughs> of the Church strikes me as something that is logically anterior. Yes, well, I've written a book about uh, that. The Republic. Yes. <laughs> I, 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 I fear I must, um, uh, because we're, we're, we're over the time. Um, look, we've, we've heard a very interesting series of discussions. I mean, we heard from Geoffrey Robinson about the sort of fundamental underlying in-principle absurdity of the institution, albeit one which he wanted to defend for entertainment value. Um, we heard from Bob Morris that all constitutions have their problems and that for the moment this one is is working, at least in the case of Britain. And we heard a very impressive overview from Dr. Cleve Scott about the range of different things that are going on in different Caribbean countries, where, as he put it, there's now a, a sort of strong movement or wave that is pushing, albeit not always without faltering, towards a Republican future in that part of the world. So can I ask you to finally join me in thanking all three of our speakers tonight. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.